Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are having a good week, and hard to believe tomorrow marks the halfway point of the week. You know, what I also find hard to believe is that uh, we are now at the very end of Andrew Waters's To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan. When we've gotten to the end, what does that mean? Does it mean that everything we've talked about comes to an end and that we stop altogether? No. It just means that we are wrapping up one series and now going to be in the works of starting a new series. But this has been a great ride, and I do hope that all of you who have been listening have come away learning more about not just the race to the Dan, but the Southern campaign of the American Revolutionary War, but also how uh, General Green was able to uh, outsmart Cornwallis, not just once, but many of occasions with his strategical retreats. And because of those strategical retreats, Nathaniel Green was able to preserve his army, not just short-term, but long-term. But here we are in this uh, final uh, episode, being our epilogue to the end of the world, and I believe that it's uh, fitting for us to um, talk about an epilogue, not only for the story itself, but to get an understanding of how two men from opposing sides um, stood out and how uh, both men left um, legacies. In other words, yes, it would be easy to think that uh, General Lord Charles Cornwallis, given that he lost at Yorktown to General George Washington, that he would have been considered a bad person for the rest of his life. But it turns out that Cornwallis uh, did make up uh, for it. Of course, if I tell you all this now, then there might not be any need to even have an epilogue. So I think it'd be very fitting to say that we should go ahead and uh, start off with a good leadoff question for our epilogue of Andrew Waters's To the End of the World, Nathaniel Green, Charles Cornwallis, and the Race to the Dan. So here we go, folks. Let's fasten our seatbelts as we get ready for this uh, epilogue. Did Nathaniel Green's troops participate in the Virginia campaign, which began two months after the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, North Carolina. Do any of you all believe that Nathaniel Groups, Nathaniel Green's <laughs> troops, pardon me, <laughs> participated in the Virginia campaign? Now, we do know that they made their way into Virginia, but it was along the Virginia-North Carolina line. But did they um, participate in the uh, Yorktown uh, campaign, I should say? Uh, it turns out that uh, no. Um, General Greene's forces uh, made their way back into South Carolina following uh, the um, engagement at the Battle of uh, Guilford Courthouse. Greene's um, decision to go back into South Carolina centered upon the fact that um, he sought out a mission that um, revolved around removing British forces from within the state or I should say from within uh, South Carolina, uh, most notably in the interior regions west of Charleston. So when you think of places uh, west of Charleston, you know, Charleston being on the coast, uh, west of Charleston, I think of Columbia being the present-day campaign, 
but also further west into what we think of as the uh, South Carolina, uh, into the far uh, northwest part of the state, uh, where we, um, you know, where we've talked about in other podcasts like uh, 96, uh, which was a, a trading post for a long time. So uh, the bottom line is that Nathaniel Green knows that there still are pockets of uh, British uh, forces from within the state of South Carolina, but his goal is to try to eliminate as much of a presence that is currently in existence to where that presence can either be um, eliminated or it can be um, moved uh, further um, back in an eastward manner to where uh, the British can be um, they can be uh, reshifted or they could be forced into a retreat rather um, around uh, the coast. So basically, yes, General Green's uh, troop forces engaged British units um, as as I mentioned a moment ago, it would have been um, west of Charleston at places like Hobkirk's Hill, just outside of Camden. Uh, and of course, we know about Camden. Uh, that was the uh, great debacle from August of 1780, where um, Horatio Gates um, basically um, took his men uh, who were ill-prepared to fight into uh, open combat and were uh, literally uh, slaughtered by uh, Cornwallis's uh, forces. So Hobkirk's Hill being just outside of Camden where General Green's troop forces did engage British units. He also um, engaged his uh, forces um, to attack uh, the British fortification 96, which lasted in a four-week siege. And then comes September of 1781, right around the same time that uh, preparations for Yorktown are beginning in Virginia. It was around the start of September 1781 that uh, Nathaniel Green's uh, troop forces fought against um, what was the uh, final holdover of British troops. That is um, a strong concentration of them, I should say, at a place called Utah Springs. Now, I'm sure many of you all are wondering, where in the world is Utah Springs? It is not far from uh, Charleston. It's not far from... um, Walterboro. It's a matter of fact, uh, I had uh, looked on a map of South Carolina not long ago and saw where Utah Springs is. um, You would uh, take the exit for Utah Springs uh, off of uh, Interstate 95. At one time it was referred to as Utahville, but there is, um, it actually might still be considered Utahville, but at one time it was referred to as uh, Utah Springs. And most of that uh, battlefield is still around uh, in today's time. Uh, part of it is preserved, but there, but you would have to go back to the 1960s when a um, neighborhood uh, was developed and, and is still in existence today where uh, part of that neighborhood encompasses uh, the Battle of uh, Utah Springs that took place back in September of 1781. What makes uh, Utah Springs rather unique is that it was um, it was a very um, deadly uh, battle, um, lots and lots of intense fighting on both sides, to where uh, it turns out that both sides laid claim to this victory, laid claim to victory. In other words, uh, the Americans struck hard first, the British went into retreat mode, 
the Americans were under the assumption that the British had retreated. They were not uh, going to uh, come back and make a, a stage or what we call a, um, a counterattack. So long story short, uh, discipline broke down. Uh, there was looting. And then somehow the British were able to retreat to a house um, nearby that would become the epicenter of uh, British um, of British protection, where the British could launch their assault on the Americans, and um, with luck they did. So basically, it was a situation where there really was no middle of the road. Uh, one side struck first and had huge results. The other side retreated, fell back, but they came back with a vengeance and um, and and took it to the opposing side. So. Neither side was able to claim victory uh, for various reasons, but yet they still, but yet both sides still laid claim to a victory. So yes, it is fair to say that um, that for the uh, final, um, how do I say it? Really, for the rest of 1781, it would be fair to say that uh, General Nathaniel Green was. Um, he wasn't in slowdown mode. He was um, he was fighting. I mean, he was fighting to see what he could basically uh, finish off that was still in um, in existence in terms of British presence in South Carolina. After uh, the race to the Dan campaign and Guilford Courthouse battle, fighting in South Carolina, which uh, Green's troops were involved, uh, didn't achieve ultimate victory. I think it's you know fair to say that there that there was not any ultimate victory, but what do you think Nathaniel Green still sought was still seeking uh, to set out? Well, I mean, it's fair to say that we know that during the race to the Dan River and most notably at Guilford Courthouse, Nathaniel Green, yes, he would have liked to have won at Guilford Courthouse, but um, but it didn't happen. But the bottom line is, even at Guilford Courthouse, he uh, was able to preserve um, a good majority of his uh, troop force. And despite not being able to win at Hobkirk's Hill or at uh, the Siege of 96, and I think it'd be fair to say if you ask me, um, how would you best define Utah Springs? I would say to me that was a um, a draw. In other words, both sides may have claimed victory. Both sides did things, but it, to me it would be considered a tie. But that's as far as I'll go there. Uh, but it is fair to say that uh, even though yes, Green uh, did not win other uh, battles in South Carolina. In the end, his mission was to preserve his overall presence of Continental um, Army troop forces, which far outweighed any or all battlefield victories. I think the way I see it is that Nathaniel Green was still trying to send a message to the British. Look, uh, you you guys may have won at Guilford Courthouse, but it came at a really, really bad price, or as the British government referred to it as a pyrrhic victory, being so costly that close to 400 of Cornwallis's men were wounded. And because nearly 400 um, soldiers are wounded, how in the world are we going to be able to replace 400 men who may not even be able to fight again? You know, it's not like we could just call up the National Guard and say, hey, you know, we need a reserve of 500 uh, men or more to, um, to uh, come over to, um, 
the United States as soon as possible to be able to um, fill in for these 400 uh, soldiers who were uh, wounded at Guilford Courthouse. It just doesn't work that way. And considering that we're now in the seventh year of this war, people are getting tired. Uh, even Parliament's getting tired of funding this war. Who's to say that the British Treasury even has a surplus? In other words, um, at some point, you know, this has to come to an end, but it's obviously not looking good uh, for the British, even if they have attained a victory that came at a pirate cost or, or at a pirate what we would call a, um, yeah, a pyrrhic victory that came at a bad cost, if that's how you want to put it. Now, is it fair to say that General Nathaniel Greene's tactics helped delay General Cornwallis from getting into Virginia much sooner? Well, isn't it fair to say, though, folks, that Cornwallis was looking for the slam-dunk victories? I mean, yes, he achieved a slam-dunk victory at Camden, and it seemed like nothing had, was going to stop Cornwallis after the uh, Camden uh, victory. But at the same time, once uh, Nathaniel Green arrives, and yes, there was some activity that took place around August 15th and in a couple of days after uh, August uh, the 16th of 1780, where British supply wagons were um, disrupted, uh, Thomas Sumter's Thomas Sumter and his 400 men below him were able to successfully capture 40 supply wagons. However, that success only lasted a couple of days. Uh, Colonel Bannister Tarleton caught uh, Sumter by surprise, but luckily was able, but maybe I should say, I don't know if luckily is the right word, but maybe Tarleton was kind enough to say, hey, look, uh, if you want your prisoners back, you're going to have to give up those supply wagons that belong to us. So that's what happened, but... Um, but it is fair to say that even uh, prior to and leading and just after Camden, there were some cracks in the British Army. But it seems as though the cracks in the Southern Campaign started evolving more so even in the midst after the uh, Camden uh, victory. So is it fair to say that Greene's tactics helped delay General Cornwallis from getting into Virginia much sooner? Yes. Uh, considering, for one, just how knowledgeable General Greene himself had become with everything geographical around him, what do we mean by everything geographical around him? Well, think of rivers, uh, the fords being the shallow sections of a river that uh, made it suitable for uh, crossing from uh, one end to another. You know, it's one thing to have a river. It's one thing to uh, transport people by uh, canoe or by um, a larger boat, like a Durham boat. But how else can you get um, get across in terms of uh, water? Horses. And what do you think, uh, for General Green, what did he need to know? And, and just how smart was he to learn in such a short period of time? He studied the rivers. He sent men like Thaddeus Kajusko out there to, to study... Um, the rivers and how, like the Catawba, the Dan, uh, just to name a few, and to understand how these rivers um, operated on a seasonal basis. So yes, um, understanding um, the geography and terrain around you, in the case with General Green, helped him out significantly in being able to be a step ahead uh, from Cornwallis because Green knew would go on to learn everything about the uh, geographical terrain of South Carolina 
in a much faster time than Charles Cornwallis could have ever attained in a lifetime. But I think the other um, part weighs um, even greater. And to me, the greater ability um, behind laid behind engaging in irregular style fighting, or what we know is that AKA guerrilla warfare, this um, irregular style fighting was meant to slow the enemy where over time, the enemy being the British, would wear down and lack the means of replacing all things essential. What do you mean by all things essential? How about wounded troops? Provisions stored on, on countless supply wagons that were eventually burned under Cornwallis's discretion. I don't know how any of those British soldiers felt knowing that the wagons got burned. To me, that would almost seem like a slap in the face. But Cornwallis was desperate, and desperate times sadly call for desperate measures that don't always um, turn out to uh, benefit um, to benefit a party or a um, a force that's in uh, chaos. Because the way I see it is that as 1780 was coming to an end and 1781 began, Cornwallis um, was losing momentum, and. When he burned around late January 1781, when he and his um, elite uh, group of um, officers agreed that it was best to burn the supply wagons, that to me is a sign that, um, that for one, not everyone is in total unison for the better, and two, that means that you don't have a clear course on where it is you are going and how it's going to uh, impact your army, not just short-term, but long-term. So Green's strategies in the Carolina campaign over time enabled General Washington and his forces to move from New York down south with the aid of French fleet, with the aid of the French fleet under um, Comte de Gras. <laughs> Pardon me, that, I know that that individual has a very, very lengthy name, but, but I do know that part of his name was Comte de Gras. Of course, I don't know if that was the most uh, fluent pronunciation in French, but it's the best I could do. So, yes, green strategies in the Carolina campaign over time enabled General Washington and his forces to move from New York down south with the aid of the French fleet that um, achieved um, something very unique. What would they do, folks? The, French, the presence of the French fleet uh, successfully cut off um, the British that is, um, under General Lord Char Charles Cornwallis, they were able to cut off his escape from uh, the coast and, re and uh, retreat back to England by sea. So, in other words, Cornwallis was pinned at Yorktown to where he had basically had no way of, um, of escaping. Uh, did General Green uh, pursue in other military engagements with British forces throughout the remainder of of fall 1781. Yes, Green and his troop forces that remained in the fight after Utah Springs from September 8th went about striving towards getting the British confined solely into Charleston where they would have no escape route. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you know, you're fighting in other places west of um, Charleston, but yes, over time, you know, if you can't win the battle right away, 
or if you end up retreating with your army intact, what would you like for the British to do? Well, you certainly don't want them coming after you, but you want the British to retreat back as far east as possible where they end up going to um, Charleston, where um, given that that's given that the, the British still have Charleston in their possession, but you want them in Charleston because they can't go any further east given that Charleston's on the coast. So British troops um, did remain present in Charleston even um, as 1781 came to an end, folks. Um, when do you think British troops actually evacuated uh, Charleston, South Carolina, all for, for good? I mean, when do you think this happened? Did it happen in December of 1782, January 1782, or um, in June of 1782? Believe it or not, folks, it was not until uh, December 14th of 1782 that what was left of the British troop presence in Charleston, South Carolina, um, evacuated once and for all. While General Greene's forces uh, remained active, uh, the level of skirmish activity did fluctuate um, immensely um, throughout the time that the British were in um, South Carolina until they officially left for good by mid-December of 1782. Now, if the British evacuate um, Charleston altogether by mid-December 1782, when does uh, General Nathaniel Greene decide to leave Charleston altogether for good? Well, I can tell you this much. On June the 21st of 1783, General Greene dismissed his remaining troop forces from service. So think about it. He dismissed what was left, left of his troop force one month, I take it back, a couple of months rather, I should say, before uh, the, the official Treaty of Paris was signed, um, officially ending all hostilities, and not just all hostilities, but officially bringing the American Revolutionary War to an end. So we have to always be reminded of the fact that while, yes, General Lord Charles Cornwallis was defeated at Yorktown, um, during the Yorktown uh, siege campaign that went from uh, September to October 19th of 1781, we must remember that even though Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown, there is still a presence of British troops in South Carolina. There still is a pre presence of British troops even as far north as New York. So just because the British were defeated at Yorktown, folks, it does not mean that what was left of the British forces in other states. It, does, it did not mean that everybody just left at once. In other words, there was no song um, that said, na-na-na-na, na-na-na-na, way-hey-hey, goodbye. No, they didn't do any of that, folks. As a matter of fact, when the British uh, laid down their uh, weapons at the surrender of Yorktown, uh, Washington pretty much instructed his men not to make any kind of... Um, rude, um, obscene remarks, because he, he knew that if any uh, inappropriate gestures were made, that it would only fuel the fire to where a fight, not just a fight, but a series of fights might break out between uh, Cornwallis's men and Washington's men. So, you know, it's one thing for a surrender to happen, but even surrenders themselves are not peaceful, considering 
everything that Cornwallis has been through in the last couple of months. He's been on the run. He's been on the run without any true uh, game plan of where he ultimately wants to go. He goes to Virginia. He almost pulls off the improbable. He and Banastray Tarleton do by almost capturing Thomas Jefferson and members of the Virginia General Assembly. But for those of you who were with me when we talked about Jack Jewett, the revolutionary hero rider, um, the ride to uh, save Virginia, well, had it not been for Mr. Jewett's ride, riding 40 miles into the night, and had it not been for other uh, members of the um, whom were uh, stationed in, in uh, Charlottesville, who warned Jefferson and members of the General Assembly. To me, how the, Re the American Revolutionary War could have come to an end had, it, had Yorktown not come into play, it would have been the capture of men like Thomas Jefferson, uh, Patrick Henry, and other um, high-profile members of the General Assembly who would have uh, been taken back to England, tried only to be hung, and then for um, and then for uh, Britain's thirteen uh, subjects, or for Britain's subjects being her thirteen colonies, they all would have uh, had no other choice but to resubmit their allegiance to the crown. So these are fragile times, uh, to say the least. Even when even when we're in the midst of a surrender. How did uh, General Lord Charles Cornwallis fare after the uh, British uh, surrender at Yorktown? He didn't see his uh, military career shattered. On one hand, that's probably a good thing. He didn't see his career shattered by what happened in the Southern Campaign of the Revolutionary War, including defeat at Yorktown. However, Cornwallis took it upon himself to learn why strategies that had been put into place during the Southern Campaign and at Yorktown, he uh, basically studied why those strategies failed. Okay, I, I have to take my hats off to Cornwallis. You know, you have to remember in, uh, in the 1780s, well, let's put it this way, Cornwallis is not extremely old. He's in his mid-40s, probably by the time the surrender takes place. But I should point out that uh, Cornwallis... Um, like I said, he did take it upon himself to learn why strategies put into place did not succeed. But while in the South, um, during the Southern campaign of the war, uh, Cornwallis had struggled internally with where his place or purpose truly belonged, considering he lost his wife a few years before and faced constant feuding within the British Army inner circle. Where would he have faced uh, the greatest of feuds? Was it with Banastray Tarleton or Colonel Banastray Tarleton? Um, well, Cornwallis and Tarleton did have some, um, what do you call it? They may have had some feuds, but the biggest feud was with um, General Henry Clinton, whom um, shortly after the uh, Camden um, victory uh, went back north to New York. But even as Cornwallis was basking and regaling in the victories at Waxhaws and at Camden, General Henry Clinton really, um, he didn't value Cornwallis 100%. He, um, it was really more about him. So whenever Cornwallis uh, corresponded with Clinton, he never really got 
true wholehearted answers from Clinton. Uh, Clinton was a very hesitant man whom, um, whom could say one thing, promise one thing, but never um, carry through with it. So I could see how for General Lord Charles Cornwallis that a, a feud um, with a man of uh, higher ranks being that of uh, General Henry Clinton, I could see how that might have contributed to his ineffectiveness behind being able to um, achieve all-out victory in the Southern Campaign. But General Henry Clinton, unfortunately, never fully supported the Southern Campaign, most notably when momentum had reached its zenith following that Camden victory in August of 1780. Maybe Henry Clinton had thought that after Camden that the, um, Amer what was left of the American army would just fold. Maybe he was convinced that, well, they don't really have much of a backbone. They're going through one general after another. What's the point? What's the point of even my being here? I could go back up to New York and just, um, I'll let, you know, Cornwallis take over, but, you know, he's, he's still going to have to report to me. So the bottom line is General Henry, Henry Clinton, to me, I, I feel has a big part in uh, why Cornwallis may not have fully succeeded 100% in the Southern campaign. Now, Cornwallis, you know, he was a good leader, but due to rifts in the greater inner circle, he did place blame on other officers, like Colonel Banastre Tarleton. Of course, Colonel Banastre Tarleton was uh, not immune from being blamed, most notably for, the, for his version of a debacle at Calpens. Uh, from early on, we learned about how um, General Daniel Morgan um, swiftly defeated Tarleton and um, other and um, and just pretty much the British Army as a whole by engaging in a double um, envelope where um, Cal where um, Morgan's forces um, outflanked Tarleton's um, right and left flanks to where they had no way of being able to escape. They were outgunned, or I should say outmaneuvered. So yes, uh, Cornwallis was a good leader, but due to rifts in the greater inner circle, he did place the blame on other officers, and he probably had his reasons to, even, and most notably General Henry Clinton. Uh, the British Army had the numbers in terms of troop size, but as the war progressed uh, further and support waned, which it did in England, and even support itself was gradually waning in, um, in America. British leadership on the military front failed to reinvent warfare when everything seemed to their advantage. Failure to reinvent allowed American forces under new leadership in General Nathaniel Green to become innovative where striking the enemy had short and long-term impacts. Impacts that had probably never been seen on a grand scale prior to Green's arrival. However, in 1786, uh, General Lord Charles Cornwallis um, gets a boost. Uh, that is, his public service career got an, a good bolster when he became Governor General in India. He held the post until the early 1790s with a better sense of being strategically prepared for times of war versus what had happened in the past, being in the Revolutionary War. He served... Um, 
in the English government holding various other uh, posts until his death on October 5th, 1805 at the age of 67. Now, what I found interesting is that when Cornwallis died in 1805, who was president of the United States, folks? How about a Mr. Thomas Jefferson, who was the author of America's Declaration of Independence? Cornwallis lived long enough to see George Washington, John Adams, and Thomas Jefferson be presidents of the United States of America. After uh, departing Charleston, South Carolina on August 11, 1783, did General Nathaniel Green return back to his native home state of Rhode Island? How many of you all think that General Nathaniel Green went back to his native home state of Rhode Island? The answer is no. Uh, Green stayed in place down south where he became entangled in financing um, schemes, or, or rather I should say in financing schemes intended upon raising money for continental troops whom had been promised uh, pay, including acquiring money for all things deemed essential. Well, when, what do you think of when you think of uh, things deemed essential in a time of war? Well, supplies. All right, well, what kind of supplies? Shoes, clothing, blankets, whatever you can get your hands on, even food-wise as well, that will sustain an army, not just short-term, but long-term. Well, General Green uh, teamed up with a man named John Banks, who was a merchant. However, um, sadly, uh, uh, Mr. Banks died shortly after the war. And sadly, uh, Mr. Banks um, was in debt. Now, I don't know if this happened or not, um, but something tells me that maybe uh, Nathaniel Green uh, co-signed for Mr. Banks. Is co-signing necessarily a bad thing? No. However, when you co-sign for someone, you have to share in with the responsibilities. More often than not, when I think of co-signing, I think of uh, someone um, signing, co-signing a lease on a car. Of course, there are many other things one can do for uh, co-signing, but let's say uh, Mr. Jones died tomorrow and Mr. Smith co-signed for Mr. Jones. Whatever debt is um, left outstanding, guess who has to pay for that outstanding debt? Mr. Smith. So when Mr. Banks died, who is left with uh, all outstanding debts? Nathaniel Green. And it's awkward enough that Nathaniel Green is left with all these outstanding debts. But what else is he um, being uh, swarmed with? Mr. Banks' creditors. The creditors being those whom lent him the money and now are seeking payment. Of course, <laughs> Mr. Banks is deceased, but now they want payment from Mr. Green. And it didn't help that uh, Nathaniel Green's uh, family fortunes had been ruined by the war, not just by the war, but the long-term duration of the war itself. And yes, I could see how a lot of family fortunes were ruined by war, um, not just for how long the war lasted, but just that, um, think about it, when you're fighting um, a war, um, who's going to have time to buy um, those goods that you sell, and are they going to have any value? It's just hard to know. 
1781, though, uh, the South Carolina General Assembly awarded General Green 10,000 guineas for his service to the state. I don't know what 10,000 guineas would be in terms of, of the equivalent of modern-day American dollars. But the good news is that this money went um, towards acquiring a 6,000-acre estate along the Edisto River. There is an island in South Carolina called Edisto Island. It's uh, outside of Charleston. So that, this is where um, Nathaniel Green would have um, settled in South Carolina. However, um, two other southern states, being North Carolina and Georgia, their state assemblies rewarded General Green with estates ranging from 25,000 to 2,000 um, acres. I tell you, Nathaniel Green's getting some good deals here, folks. Now the bigger question is, where do you want to go to settle? I don't think it should be so much the house itself. It's what you do on the land itself that will help you get out of debt over time. So did General Green relocate permanently where he lived in a southern state versus returning back to Rhode Island? Well, General Green officially relocated to George's Cumberland Island where he received 11,000 acres. The move to Cumberland Island was meant to curtail existing wartime debts that, um, that Nathaniel Green was bogged down in. And he sought to use the money generated from, in his, from the estate at Edis, on the Edisto River, including Mulberry Grove, which was a Georgia estate. So yes, he wants to use the money generated from those estates but sadly, Nathaniel Green was not constantly present at either estate. Do you think he was being lazy, folks? No. The man wasn't being lazy. But he never um, did fully work out a way of all existing debts. Sadly, that was never able to be arranged. And sadly, on June the 19th of 1786... Nathaniel Green died at the age of 43 from a heat stroke. He's buried um, in Savannah, Georgia. Now, whenever you hear of places like Greenville, South Carolina, Greenville, North Carolina, there are a lot of places in America, the name of uh, Greenville, like there's Greenville, Tennessee, uh, there's Greenville, Ohio, uh, Greenville, Virginia. We have a Green County in Virginia. We, there's also a Green County in New York State, which is a part of the uh, Catskill country. All of those places, for example, folks, are named after General Nathaniel Green. To me, that is quite a, a fitting tribute, to say the least, given um, he was one of those officers that came. At, he was at the right place at the right time and uh, truly made a difference in um, revitalizing or I should say saving the, um, what was left of the Southern Continental Army before it uh, virtually collapsed. Although the Southern campaign began in the months after June of 1778 when the Revolutionary War came to a stalemate uh, in the middle uh, colonies, uh, most notably at Monmouth uh, Courthouse, New Jersey, British leadership firmly believed by waging war down south meant attracting loyalists from all corners whom shared the same exact ideological principles, or I should say beliefs. It's uh, one thing to attract a loyalist or a group of loyalists into the British army, 
But if promises can't be made from leaders above, and yes, um, British officers did promise those who were of loyalist faith, that is, uh, the people of South Carolina who, claim, who proclaimed their loyalty to king and country, British officers would promise them um, roles in the greater conflict, but they never got fulfilled. So even those whom promised that they could play their part and help out um, the British army were, were frowned upon. They weren't valued, and because they weren't valued, their loyalties changed pretty quickly. They either switched over to the Patriot side or they just decided to be neutral. But regardless, um, if promises can't be made from leaders above, then loyalty itself from within the British cause no longer has any true relevancy. General Cornwallis placed too much faith in his troop size, including methods of fighting. But even when momentum is at its pinnacle, meaning it's at its greatest height, or at its greatest uh, glory, the game of chess should be altered where your side, controlling all momentum, must strike a dagger into the enemy's heart where a greater conflict has a foreseeable end in sight. For Cornwallis, little did he know that change was soon coming, but that change wasn't to better his forces, but rather an enemy in the Americans whom saw their savior arrive into camp on December 2nd, 1780. Well, who was that savior, folks? Arrival was one of an officer coming at the right place and time given Patriot troops were down to three days left of all things deemed essential behind survival and keeping independence flame alive. That officer being Nathaniel Green. Military leaders have their shares of highs and lows, but glory alone doesn't solidify true legacy. General Nathaniel Green wasn't about tallying up victories won by his army, but rather a general whom sought to preserve his army without sending them into combat, only to experience a defeat so grave where he no longer had an army that um, functioned. General Green believed in his army, but didn't believe that sacrificing an entire army was the way to resolve hurdles at stake. Doing things unconventional by engaging in irregular style fighting became the primary means for survival. It had to be if they were going to wear the British down long term. Uh, preserving an army is a work of art. But having proper leadership at the right place and time uh, makes all the difference, especially when the chips are against David, being the Patriots, in the midst of the Southern campaign that saw Charleston fall come mid-May 1780, followed by uh, a Waxhaw massacre and a debacle at Camden. It might have been the lowest of lows as 1780 neared an end, but General Nathaniel Green didn't didn't have time for a pity party. Instead, he brought hope, and with hope, a renewed sense of faith that entailed structure, task assignments, study of surrounding rivers, recruiting soldiers and militia to revamping fighting tactics. Although General Green's uh, campaign in the Carolinas lasted three and a half months, it was one that saved the Continental Army from collapse 
and without General Greene's leadership, the race to the Dan might have had a different outcome. The race to the Dan wasn't a sports marathon race, but this race during time of war pertained to survival of the fittest. Greene's army didn't have the size, but had every ounce of tactical genius available in outsmarting an enemy whom re relied upon size. Size and speed are great, but speed and strategical retreat are what helped define Greene's, General Greene's troops, whom lost more battles, but yet made it to and past the Dan River in better shape versus Cornwallis's troops, who might have won at Guilford Courthouse, but did so at a terrible price. Victories are one thing, but preserving an army short and long-term is what Nathaniel Greene strove for, and he accomplished just that. The Southern Continental Army persevered because of what General Greene represented, but how he preserved his army allowed for the greater revolutionary movement to survive, stay afloat, live for another day, his whole strategical game plan allowed, allowed General Washington to buy time up north to where the French did arrive. And Washington and his forces, along with the French forces, ventured south along with the French fleet off the coast and were able to trap Cornwallis by the time Cornwallis um, decided that he wanted to make a go for it, but he was cut off, meaning that once he was cut off, it was only a matter of time before he um, had to issue a surrender. Well, that wraps it up for this series, folks, and um, it's been a great one. And whenever you all hear of Guilford Courthouse, North Carolina, whenever you hear of um, any um, battle from the Southern Campaign, think of... Um, Think of the uh, highs and the lows, but think of General Nathaniel Green being that final piece to a puzzle that um, enabled the Southern Continental Army to be reborn. Um, think of General Green and how he um, reinvented um, how the Army would uh, go about um, conduct conducting itself as a unit, not just a unit, but as a whole unit. So without General Green, without General Morgan, without other officers from South Carolina, most notably like Andrew Pickens, Francis Marion, Thomas Sumter, who would go on to become the fighting Gamecock, without those officers, I don't believe that there could have been an effective, or I, I should say a functioning Southern Continental Army. Leadership comes, leadership goes. We saw how... Um, Benjamin Lincoln, yes, tried to fight admirably at Charleston, but yet was forced to surrender 5,400 troops. Horatio Gates was riding on the coattails of his success at Saratoga from 1777. He was under the assumption that because he had, uh, commanded, he had commanded a disciplined army, not just a disciplined army, but a veteran army, he was led to believe that because of the success he had at Saratoga, he would have that same success automatically in the South. Success does not always happen wherever you go, but if strategies aren't changed, then success, even if it's attained differently, 
can't be achieved. Nathaniel Green was a man whom learned early on from his mistakes, most notably from the New York uh, campaign debacle. But Nathaniel Green was also a man willing to adapt, a man willing to um, make necessary adjustments when they had to be made in order to ensure that um, an army survived, not just at the moment, but would survive going forward. Nathaniel Green was the right man, right leader, right place at the right time to make all the difference for the Southern Continental Army. We owe him a huge uh, debt of um, gratitude. So uh, thank you again for uh, listening to this uh, series. And um, if you are interested in um, learning more about the uh, American Revolutionary War Southern Campaign, there are uh, plenty of other uh, good books out there. Uh, there was one written some years back called The Road to Guilford Courthouse. Uh, there have been books written about um, Thomas Sumter, uh, Andrew Pickens. Uh, there have been other books uh, written about uh, General Daniel Morgan. Uh, but, but the Southern Campaign on, onto itself is one that must not be forgotten because too often when we think of the Revolutionary War, we're always thinking about Trenton, Princeton. We're thinking about um, Bunker Hill, Lexington, Concord, Saratoga, uh, Yorktown. While all those battles are important, I mean, any battle from the American Revolutionary War is important, but more often than not, the Southern Campaign is what's been forgotten with the exception of Yorktown. So thank you again for uh, being ardent listeners. If you know of anyone out there who's interested in podcasting or wanting to come to Anchor, tell them to come. They won't regret it for one minute. Thank you, and when I'm on the air again next, we're going to be starting a new series, and um, it will be uh, well worth the while. And uh, it's going to be something that you all will uh, really enjoy. Thank you again for listening. Take care and stay safe.